I don't know if you know this morning the difference between envy and jealousy. They are often interchanged in usage, but there is a distinct difference in envy and jealousy. Now, envy is the emotion of desiring or coveting what is someone else's. You are desiring someone else's attributes. You are desiring something that they have, uh, perhaps a certain physical feature. You are desiring that you don't have, but they have. That is envy. Jealousy, on the other hand, is the emotion of fearing that something or someone that you already possess is being threatened by a third party or that somehow it will be taken away by someone else. Simply put, generally, envy is a situation between two people while jealousy is between three parties. Envy is a reaction to lacking something while jealousy is a reaction to the threat of losing someone or losing something. Now, it's often mixed up because the emotions of envy and jealousy are often interrelated. But let me give you an example so that you can differentiate the two. And this is an example only. As an example, I am envious of the good looks of Hyun Bin of Crash Landing on You. It's just an example. I have nothing to be envious about, I know. But I am envious in the context of usage. I'm envious of the good looks of Hyun Bin. I am jealous that my wife thinks Hyun Bin is good looking and feel threatened that one day he will come and take her away. This is only an example to differentiate the two emotions. This would never, of course, happen since I banned this show from our house. <laughs> that means when you feel jealous, you often feel envious as well. Now, why is it important that I'm noting this difference between these two emotions? Because both emotions often come into play to divide families. Both envy and jealousy come together often to not only divide families, but divide friends as well. And so this morning, as we continue our sermon series entitled Home, looking at the life of Jacob, we want to take a look at these two emotions. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 29. We pick up our study in verse 31, and we will look all the way to chapter 30, verse 24. We will be extrapolating some biblical principles as it relates to envy and jealousy. Now, as you're turning to Genesis chapter 29, beginning in verse 31, by way of reminder, we talked about this last week. Jacob was tricked by his uncle Laban into marrying Leah after having worked seven years for the right to marry Rachel. Now, Jacob had then agreed to work another seven years for the right to marry Rachel. So Jacob marries Rachel seven days after marrying Leah and is now in the process of working off those agreed seven years. Now for the record, let me say that Jacob should not have married Rachel since he was already married to Leah. 
God's view of marriage ever since Genesis 1 and 2 has been between one man and one woman. And while polygamy, having multiple wives, was practiced by the people of that culture, God never allowed for it. And as mentioned in previous weeks, just because God doesn't immediately punish them for having a polygamous relationship doesn't mean he approves of it. As we have seen these past few weeks, having multiple spouses only means much greater problems. But you may say, in this case, it seems justified because Jacob was tricked into marrying Leah. Now listen carefully. If we were to use that reason of trickery as a basis for marrying someone else, then every husband would say they were tricked into marrying their wives. Just think about that. So yes, while Jacob wanted to marry the more beautiful Rachel, perhaps it was God's will that Jacob married the more tender and kinder Leah, and that God's sovereign will was accomplished in spite of human manipulation and deception on the part of Laban. We have seen this biblical principle play out throughout the life of Jacob. And also you should remember, it was through Leah's fourth son Judah that the Messiah Jesus traces his lineage. But I just want to mention that because some of you may feel that it's justified to marry someone else. I don't believe it to be the case. Well, in verse 30 of chapter 29, we read last week, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. It was obvious to all, especially most obvious to the women. Look what happens, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son and called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now therefore, my husband will love me. God saw that Leah was unloved by Jacob and so blessed her with the ability to have children while the loved Rachel could not have children at this point. Leah was caught in the middle in what was sadly her father's deceptive plans. But the Lord, in a way, made it up for her, and she was able to give birth to the firstborn of Jacob. She called him Reuben, and I want you to see Leah's response. The Lord has been good to me because of my situation. I hope now that my husband will love me. Leah is envious of Jacob's love for her sister, Rachel. And so she's thinking, since I have given him a son, I've given him a male heir, then he will love me. That was her hope. But apparently it doesn't work because Jacob still loved Rachel a lot more. So look what happens, verse 33. Then she conceived again and bore a son and, and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me the son also. And she called his name Simeon. Leah gave birth to another son, called him Simeon, and, and look at her reaction. Since Jacob still doesn't love me after Reuben, perhaps this second son will get Jacob to love me more. 
still envious of Jacob's love for the other wife. But sadly, Jacob still doesn't return the love. Verse 34. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. Leah is thinking, Surely I have given Jacob three sons. Jacob will love me. It was as if her cry for Jacob's love motivated her to enter into a competition. The competition being who can give more sons to Jacob. Now let's step back and think about this. Have any of you used more children as a competition? Most of us would not use it today. Can you imagine if we use that today? We realize sometimes a smaller family is better. She's thinking, I'm going to compete with my sister. I'm going to give Jacob three sons and more. Maybe he will love me. We think how silly this type of competition. It's useless. It doesn't get Jacob to love her more. But this is what people naturally do when they are envious. They start to compete with the other person who may or may not be competing back. Just in the hopes of getting what they don't have, right? We, we want what someone else has. We want to look a certain way that someone else looks. And so we compete with them, even though they may not think that they are competing, just so that in our mind we can be better than them, above them, come up to par with them. And this is our first principle, number one, of your taking notes. Unchecked envy drives people to unhealthy competition. Unchecked envy drives people to unhealthy competition. My friends, when you are not content with what the Lord has given you, graciously given you, then often we will naturally embark on a futile journey of competition which may not even garner you a very worthwhile result. Let me ask you a question. What do you get when you compete to try to have a bigger house than your friend, right? What do you get when you are competing to see who has the bigger house and you get a bigger house and you win? What do you get? You know what you get? You get a bigger house. That's it. It doesn't make you happier. It doesn't mean that your children will suddenly start becoming more obedient. It doesn't mean that they will now honor you by coming home every Sunday for lunch. What do you get in the competition for a bigger house? You simply get a bigger house and oftentimes more problems. What do you get if you are competing to have the latest, greatest, most expensive phone? What do you get? You just get a phone. It doesn't mean you'll feel better. In fact, you may be the target now of people wanting to steal that phone from you. What do you get when you try to look prettier or more handsome than someone else? 
you don't get what you want to get. Because beauty is subjective. And oftentimes, in the pursuit of beauty, you know that what you get is a lower self-esteem, always asking for people's approval, or perhaps you are emotionally hurt in the process. And yet we still embark on these silly competitions. What do you get when your child beats another child in terms of grades on their test? Does it make you a better mother? Does it make you a better father? Of course not. We know that. And yet, why do so many mothers and fathers, to some extent, compete with other mothers through their children's achievement? We know how silly it is. It's ridiculous. And yet, we are still practicing it. Because that's what envy does. Unchecked envy drives men and women to unhealthy competition. And the worst part of all of this is that if the other person can't even compete or isn't even competing with you, that's the case. Rachel can't even have children. And here Leah is saying, look at me. I've won. I will win over his love. You know, for someone in competition, the hollowest of victories is when the other person says to you when you've won, I wasn't even trying. You mean we were competing? I didn't know that. It's a hollow victory. Because now you're thinking, I beat them, but they weren't trying. I wonder if they really tried what I've beaten them. In a competition, it's only fulfilling when you know everyone's trying their best, and then you win. And that's why it's core root. Most often, competitions are inane and silly because it's only a, a one-way competition driven by envy. It's often sillier when it is in the family. It's only when contentment, instead of envy, takes over, that in your heart you feel satisfied and that the competition ends. Look at verse 35. And Leah conceived again and bore a son. And said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. I think Leah, by son number four, realized that she was never going to win the love of Jacob. And she looked at her life and she realized, God has blessed me with four wonderful boys. So now instead of trying to get Jacob's love, look at her response When Judah is born, she says, I will praise the Lord. I will thank him for the blessings that he has given me in these four boys. I think at this moment, she is settled in her heart. She is allowed contentment instead of envy to fill her heart. So the competition ends. And the Bible tells us she stopped bearing. She is satisfied, at least for this moment that God has blessed her with four wonderful boys. But then we have Rachel. Look at chapter 30, verse 1. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Rachel saw that Leah bore 
Jacob four sons, and she could not give him a son. And she became envious of what she could not have. And she began to become very dramatic, telling Jacob, give me children or else I'm going to die. I don't think she was really using her head when she was saying this to Jacob. Because common logic dictates, even before the invention of the sonogram or modern medicine, that it is not Jacob's fault that she cannot have children. It's her issue. Right? Logic. If Jacob and Leah can have children, then it's not Jacob's issue. And that's why this is how Jacob responds. Verse 2. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Let me put it in colloquial terms. Dr. Jacob says, it's not me, it's you. I can't give you what God only can give. I don't have the power to give us what you've requested. The opening of one's womb, that belongs to God. But here we see that Rachel is exhibiting jealousy. She's envious of Leah's ability to have children, but she is jealous that somehow she will lose Jacob and his love to her sister, the third party, because of her inability to bear children. She is jealous. And it's so ironic. Leah is envious of Jacob's love for Rachel, and Rachel is envious of Leah's ability to bear children. This is family drama at its best. You should make a movie out of it. Rachel doesn't realize that Jacob's love was upon her, even though Leah had already borne him four sons. But it's so sad that her jealousy has clouded her mind. And her jealousy to protect her standing as the favored wife, to hold on what she had, which she was never in danger of losing in the first place, that it led her to propose this crazy idea. Look at verse 3 to 5. So Rachel said, here is my maid Bilhah, go into her, and she will bear a child on my knees that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, his wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Now let me explain these verses. The culture of that time allowed, sadly, that a woman who could not have children could take her maid and give the maid to her husband as his wife. If there is a child born out of that relationship, then it would be accounted as the wife's child, not the maid's. This is what we call surrogacy. This is ancient surrogacy. It's filled with a lot of ethical issues. Surrogacy is practiced nowadays in modern ways. If you are considering it, I would like to talk to you about this in my office. This is replete with ethical issues. This idea of surrogacy is using human means to overwrite what God has willed. God never approved of this custom, even though it was practiced in that day. It reminds us, this is exactly what Sarah did in Genesis chapter 16, 
when she gave Hagar to Abraham, if you remember that story, as his wife, because she did not trust God that in her old age she could give him an heir. And what happened? The birth of Ishmael through Hagar caused family dysfunctions and tension with Isaac even until today. But Rachel's action shows an utter lack of trust in God, as did Sarah's action of Genesis 16. Rachel was blinded by jealousy, and so she took matters into her own hand. And more than her actions, I want you to see her misguided reaction after Bilhah has a son. I want you to see how her theology, her view of God, has now warped. Look at verse 6. And Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with great wrestling, I've wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Her maid Bilhah produces two sons for her. And in her mind, it's okay, it's normal. Look how her jealousy has skewed her outlook as it relates to God. She uses the name of God in this human plan. She said, you know, God felt sorry for me. And so she gave me a son. But in reality, God didn't feel sorry and give her a son. It was through her maid, Bilhah. So she is warped in her theology using the name of God at will. And then somehow, in verse 8, she thinks she's one. I have prevailed over Leah. But I want to tell Rachel, 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 simple math. Two is not greater than four. But in her mind, two sons that are produced from another woman, counted to her, is greater than four that Leah herself bore. It just shows you that Rachel's theology, and everyone has a theology. Theology simply means one's view of God. Rachel's theology is distorted. It's warped. And here's our second principle, number two. Unbridled jealousy often results in misguided theology and unjustified sin. Unbridled jealousy often results in misguided theology and unjustified sin. That's exactly what jealousy does. It distorts our view of God. It distorts what His desire is for us to do. And so when we try to help God in human ways, and we feel as if somehow it has worked, then we say, well, God, thank you. Thank you for blessing my plans. My friends, do not use God's name to ascribe to Him anything that you have done and you know to be wrong. Sin is never justified. Just because you think you're protecting something or protecting someone from being taken away, the ends never justify the means. God is never a part of our sinful plotting and planning. Although He can redeem man's evil ways to sovereignly accomplish His will, that is not a license to bring God 
into your sinful ways. For example, if a, a wife is jealous that another woman is prettier, and in her insecurity she thinks that this other woman is getting the attention of her husband, she begins to think, how do I get rid of her? And then she resorts to spreading lies and rumors about her amongst her friends, and then it spreads, and then she goes away. And then she goes around and proclaims, praise the Lord, the Lord has taken her away. That is an unjustified course of action. The sin of rumor-mongering and lies do not justify a so-called result. But jealousy, blinded jealousy, results often in the using of God's name in inappropriate ways. We call that misguided theology and sadly unjustified sins where we think that things are okay. Now that Rachel has kids credited to her, there is no indication that somehow Jacob loved her more or less. But here's the problem. Leah, when she was content of heart, kept to herself. But now Leah was drawn back into this competition. She is now worried that Jacob will love Rachel even more. Now, that's a bit, again, misguided because Jacob didn't really love her in the first place. What did she think would happen? But now she has developed a rivalry with her sister. It's no longer about trying to get Jacob's love now becomes Leah versus Rachel. Who can produce the most sons? And so Leah is brought back in, and she is now stooping to the level of Rachel, and look, sadly, what she does. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes, so she called his name Gad. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Leah does what Rachel does. She gives her maid Zilpah to Jacob as his surrogate wife. Because again, now it's become a competition, not about for Jacob's love, it's not a competition between who has the most son. And soon it becomes six for Leah, two for Rachel. Look at Leah's statement. I am happy. Let me stop here. Her theology and outlook on life has now been warped as well. What woman would say, I've given my husband another woman. I'm happy. People will see me as blessed. Really? That you have now stooped to the level of your rival. That God will allow people to call you blessed? Leah, you had it. Why did you stoop down to what Rachel did? But her actions shows us what happens, number three. Senseless rivalry causes one to follow another's sinful ways. Senseless rivalry often causes someone 
to follow another's sinful ways. Leah, it was four to her two. You still won or are winning. Why do you think it needs to be six to two, right? You did things in a way that was God-honoring. And you still came on ahead. It was four sons to two. Why do you have to resort to Rachel's sinful act to widen your lead? But that is the very nature of rivalry. You see, if you're going to compete in a silly rivalry, then you're going to employ methods that the other party uses so that you can maintain the pace or beat them. That's the very ironic thing. We enter into a competition to try to become better. Is that correct? We enter into a competition We compare ourselves with others to be better. But sadly, it often drags us down as people to make us not as better, not as good, especially if the other party doesn't have any convictions or ethics. Let me explain this in our context. We see this happen in the lives of many business people here in the Philippines who start out by wanting to do the right thing. But in the rivalry of business, They finally give up and they say, if you can't beat them, join them. When you see people in life gaining on you, and you somehow enter into this silly competition with them, then you will often do the same thing. Because if they are accomplishing these things in life, doing these unethical things, then maybe I should do the same thing just to keep pace. That's so sad that when Christians try to compete with non-believers, to try to better themselves, they end up falling to be just like one of them. Leah, if only she stood her ground. She was winning, but she was blinded by rivalry. She couldn't see that four is greater than two. In her mind, it must be six to two. To widen the advantage. Christians, you already have won in this life. The Bible tells us we have victory. You and I do not need to stoop to the level of the world to try to get on top when you are already on top. And yet, you have heard me preach that men and women today, rich as they are, will sell their character for 300 pesos. We are already victorious in Jesus Christ. Why is it that we feel the need to go to the level of the world to compete with them when we have already won? Verse 14. Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field. And brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, Therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. Now, Reuben is about six or seven years old at this time, so it's little Reuben. And he's playing in the fields during the wheat harvest. 
And he happens to find some mandrakes and gives them to his mom. Now, mandrakes were prized plants. It was a fragrant plant. It was also known as an aphrodisiac and thought magically could help barren women conceive. So when little Reuben gives to Leah the mandrakes that he finds in the wheat fields, Rachel happens to be there, or she knows about it, and she tells Leah, can I have some of it? Leah isn't willing to give it. Then Rachel says to Leah, I will let you have time with Jacob if you give these mandrakes to me. Apparently, Jacob had been spending most of his evenings with Rachel, and Leah wanted some time with him, and so the trade was made. Verse 16, when Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fit son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I've given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Ishakar. Jacob comes back to work. Leah meets her husband and tells Jacob, you have to sleep with me tonight. There's a deal. I've hired you for the night in exchange for mandrakes. Doesn't sound very romantic, does it? You wonder, where's the love? Where's the romance? Let me tell you something. When you are in competition, forget feelings. Forget romance. Forget love. You are in competition mode. Now, it's important to note that Rachel gets no children of her own from the mandrakes. But instead, Leah gets another son, Ishakar. In fact, look, verse 19. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Leah conceives two more children after Ishakar, three in total, while Rachel has no children. Rachel had tried to use the, the mandrakes, the supposed magical powers of a plant, to conceive, but does not. We read this and we wonder, why in the world would the Bible tell us such sordid details about the life of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. We've got to ask that. This is family dirt. This is the type of drama that you don't want anyone to know if it's happening in your families. And I think the author of Genesis mentions these matters because he wants to show something very clear. That in reality, it is God who gives and it is God who blesses and if you who play the competition and the comparison, comparison game based on your envy and your jealousy, it's just really silly. When you read this passage again, you, can, you can't help but just laugh. What an exercise in futility, especially in the case of Rachel. Rachel using her maid, using mandrakes to get God to give to her what God said was not yet time. 
But she could not trust God. She was not content to already have Jacob's love. And if she only had not tried human manipulation, maybe God would have brought her blessings much earlier. There is reason why much dysfunction and messiness is in our lives. It's because we allow envy and jealousy to go unchecked in our homes. We see that in the family of Jacob, in the years and in the centuries to come, because of Leah and Rachel's rivalry, foundation upon their envy and jealousy, that they allowed their competition and comparison game to grow out of hand. And you should not believe that it was only contained to them. You don't think the children would feel this competition? Surely they did. If you don't believe me, jump ahead to Genesis chapter 37 and read it this week. And you can see how the sons of Leah felt about the son of Rachel. You and I know his story. Rachel's son being Joseph. Remember him, the one with the coat of many colors? Where his brother sold him into slavery? That should be a lesson for us. That in our families, in our place of work, in our schools, in our community context, that when you play the comparison and the competition game, it is a futile, useless exercise. And envy and jealousy that goes unchecked will cause dysfunction not only in your generation, but in the generations to come. And here's the lesson number four. When one accepts the prerogative of God to give and bless as he so chooses, then envy and jealousy have no place in our lives. When one accepts the prerogative of God to give and bless as he so chooses, then envy and jealousy have no place in our lives. What is the use of being envious? What is the use of being jealous when it only leads to bitter conflict and unhealthy competition, knowing that if you are envious and you are jealous, it doesn't change your situation because there is a loving God who gives good things in accordance with His will based on His wisdom and grace. It is only He that can give and bless. Us feeling envious and jealous cannot strong arm and twist God to do our bidding. And that's what we see here. All this human manipulation, God is saying, let me show you that it is my will that it gets executed. This is a tough lesson for a lot of people. Many of us are like Leah and Rachel. We have it good, but we're never content because we want what someone else has. And that's what we have and are secured in. We're so afraid that someone else will take it from us, forgetting that it is God who protects And so we go down to the level of the world, playing the silly games they play, 
forgetting the truth that it is God's prerogative to give and to bless. I think that Rachel finally realizes this, that she can't manipulate God. She can't twist God's arm. She can't use human or fake magical techniques through a plant. I think she finally came to the realization that only God can bless and give. All that she does has garnered her zero children. While in the chapters we've read, ten sons and one daughter has already been born. What can she do? She can wait on the Lord. Verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. Was it that God had not listened to her pleas before? For sure, she was pleading and pleading. But why now that God listens? I think before in her cry to the Lord, she was half-baked in her cry for help. Lord, give me a child. Oh, by the way, I've got some other ideas how I can get a child. Jacob, give me a son. Mandrakes, do your thing. And God's hearing her cries and saying, okay, it doesn't work where you trusted me fully and you use other human manipulative means. I'm going to show you that those things don't work out. You can't trust in those things because trust is by very nature a hundred percent effort, if you get what I mean. There is no 50% trust. There is not 99% trust. It's only 100% trust. That's the very nature of trust. And I think she finally realizes as she continues to cry to the Lord, it's up to you. Only you can do it. And the Bible tells us, okay, are you done, Rachel? You're done? Okay. And the Bible says he listened to her. And opened her room. She finally acknowledges God has taken away my reproach, my shame. I don't believe that that word reproach or the shame is only in reference to the shame of her not being able to have a son. Perhaps it's in reference to all the shameful things she did to try to get God to do her bidding. God will give her yet another son, Benjamin. She will have two, Joseph and Benjamin. We'll talk about them later. This story is a reminder that in the Christian life, the life that we live to follow Jesus should know no envy or jealousy because in our lives we are called to live for Jesus to glorify Him with our lives. And so if you really want to compare, then compare to see how much you love Jesus with others. If you really want to compete, compete with them to see how you can faithfully serve Him with your life. 
Live your life with such a proper focus on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And do not allow unbridled envy and jealousy to bring greater dysfunction and messiness into your life. Why is this important for us? Because men and women, the world is watching. Your children are watching. They're watching how you and I fall into the temptation of jealousy and envy, never content with what God has given us. And so we, we enter into these silly competitions in life. And somehow, if your kids are watching you play these games, they may think, well, maybe it's okay. And if you have children, more than one, perhaps they're all the same gender, all girls or all boys, that is the seed and the environment where rivalry will surely happen if you are not modeling to them that envy and jealousy have no place in the home. Yes, as young as your children are, because of our sinful nature, there are many young women today who are traumatized because all throughout their young life, they thought that their other sister was more beautiful than them. There are men today who have a lot of emotional baggage because in their young life, they could never measure up to their older brother. We have these issues. And Satan loves to use our insecurities to drive a wedge in our families by allowing envy and jealousy to percolate. And oh, we think that somehow we could just only be better than them in one thing it will bring completeness to our life. Model it today, parents, that envy and jealousy have no place in the Christian life. The blessings of God and how uniquely created you should be sufficient to encourage you. And if you are fighting today, I don't know who you're fighting with, you could be fighting with another business. You could be fighting with your sibling. You could be fighting with your parents. You could be fighting with your uncle, your aunt, or whatever things you are fighting for. Ask yourself the question, what are you fighting for? What will make you happy when you beat them? And you no longer have a relationship with them. And your family has been destroyed, but you won. Will that make you really feel better? Will you no longer be envious and jealous? It won't work out the way you think. The Christian life, with the proper focus and attention on the Lord Jesus Christ, will remind us that by His grace, we have what we have. By his grace, that even in the unfairness of life, we have good health. 
We have a roof over our head. We have a happy family. Can you be content in that and not fall into silly competitions and unhealthy comparisons? May God help all of us to rid our hearts, to guard our hearts from envy and jealousy, which is the root of much dysfunction. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. So clear from a dysfunctional family, specifically in the person of Rachel and Leah, to see how we should not be doing things. And yet, Lord, we think that envy and jealousy, it's not a big deal. Yes, it is petty, but it makes us feel so good when we compete, thinking that we will be better than someone else. We just need to win. Help us to remember, Lord, what we are fighting for. That we are not fighting for the glory of your name. That we are not fighting for integrity. That we are not fighting for truth. We are not fighting for justice. Then what are we fighting for? I pray that the Holy Spirit would correct us in the areas of our life that need to be corrected. And may it be, Lord, that in this congregation, that the men and women who harbor envy and jealousy of others would recognize that it only leads to dysfunction and messiness in life, that we would put our focus solely on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, that if we want to compete, we compete as the scriptures remind us to know you more, to love you more, to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.